0: Hard to Believe is proud to be a part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. To find more of this and other great shows, head to cageclub.me. You can find the show on YouTube by searching Hard to Believe Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review. Or you can support the show on Patreon by heading to patreon.com slash hardtobelieve. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at john at cageclub.me or you can find me on Twitter at probablyrealjb. That's P-R-O-B-A-B-L-Y-J-B. The show is written and produced by me. Recently, the group's American Atheists and Mississippi Humanist Association filed a lawsuit against the state of Mississippi over its In God We Trust license plates. The lawsuit accuses the state of violating the First Amendment right of freedom of speech and religion by, in effect, forcing them to invoke God on their personal property. On a related note there's a chance you've noticed that over the last decade or so the religious right has developed a very public preoccupation with what they call quote religious liberty but keep in mind these are not the same causes the champions of so-called religious liberty do not side with plaintiffs in the mississippi case and this concern for quote religious liberty does not extend to say building a mosque several blocks away from the world trade center Nor does it save Starbucks from right-wing rage-tweets about their aesthetic choices for their wintertime cups. The secular constitutional concept of religious freedom has little, if anything, to do with religious fundamentalism at the heart of the term religious liberty. But the obfuscation of those two things is, for the religious liberty people, the point. As the phenomenon we call Trumpism rages on in the wake of January 6th, and as we reckon with a judiciary that's increasingly sympathetic to theocratic leanings and hostile to progressive humanism, I wanted to talk with someone with a strong understanding of both the religious and legal side of this. That person is my guest today, civil rights attorney and Episcopal priest, the Reverend Dr. Marshall Ledford. I'm John Brooks, and this is Hard to Believe. Marcia, welcome to Hard to Believe. It is great to have you.
1: Well, thank you. It's a delight to be here, John. I've been looking forward to this one.
0: You are a person with a lot of different titles uh, and with a very interesting biography to go along with those titles. Would you like to give the quick sort of elevator pitch version of your uh, your biography?
1: Sure. I, for most of my working life, have been a civil rights attorney. But as a teenager, I sensed a call to ordained ministry, but I wasn't seeing women at the pulpit and the altar. So I sort of tried to ignore the call, which uh, the Holy Spirit was not too uh, pleased with or cooperative and kept poking at me. And so in my late 40s, I decided to go to seminary. Uh, and now I am a an Episcopal priest and I went back to get my doctor of ministry after that, after my Master of Divinity, because I became appalled at what I saw in the course of my Latino ministry and what we are doing to families uh, that tears them apart. Our Immigration Act is draconian and needs to be fully overhauled. And so I went and studied political theology, and so now I'm... Providing resources and equipping progressive Christians with tools to get out there and be more vocal in the public square so that we can achieve greater social justice.
0: You use the term political theology, um, a term that I suspect not a huge number of people are um, immediately familiar with. Can you just briefly explain like, what makes political theology political theology?
1: Political theology can be thought of as faith-based advocacy. When we speak publicly with respect to our faith and what we believe is right and wrong and advocate using that as our foundation to call for greater justice in society Uh, lawyers love prongs like uh (laughs) prongs of a test to see if if the test is satisfied and so there are three prongs to political theology uh in the context that i'm using it and one is to speak faithfully uh the second one is in public and the third one is to as large or broad an audience as possible so
0: we are right now as we're recording this um just on the a uh, few days away from from july 4th um, which is a holiday that i um, always have very conflicted feelings about and yep. Um, this this year especially, um, you know, uh, flag waving and and jingoism uh, in the context of a post January sixth world is um, I think even more sort of morally complicated um, for a lot of us uh, than, than maybe it, it once was. Um, but one of the things that the events of the last few months and and sort of the um, the the Trump era um, has gotten me increasingly kind of concerned and and things that i've been thinking about more and more um, is the sort of weaponization of this idea of religious liberty um and, and using the notion of religious liberty as a um a code for um you know oppressing people's identities right um one of the things that also i get Asked about a lot as a as a teacher is um, what the separation of church and state is all about mm-hmm. um, and 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 the constitutional basis for that and where you can and can't have religion in the public square um, and so one of the things that I I one of the reasons I want to talk to you is 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 to um, you know get some of your insight as someone who lives in both of these worlds of 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 the law and of theology um, sort of you know, very intimately some insight into, into those, into those issues. So I want to start with the, the, the thing that I think most people get wrong um, which is the relationship between the constitution, the quote unquote founding fathers and the separation of church and state in your view, what is the, the, the biggest sort of misconception um, about the country's DNA and this this church-state separation idea.
1: Right. Well, first of all, let's back up to when the First Amendment was being crafted by essentially James Madison and Thomas Jefferson. And of course, we our country came to be uh, in part out of a search for religious liberty from England and the Church of England, And so when the First Amendment came into being, and it was ratified in 1791, it was like nothing the world had ever seen before. The idea that you could speak your mind against the government was a a wholly new concept. In England, if you spoke against the crown, you could get your tongue cut out. So... You know, the divine right of kings and all of that had a very strong influence on how the citizenry or the subjects um, were able to critique government actions and demand whatever. So we started this and Madison called it the Great American Experiment. And of course, we didn't know, uh, they didn't know what was going to happen but they knew that it was risky and it was on the cutting edge of what it means to be a citizen in a way that hadn't been really exercised before. Now, it was more narrowly interpreted than it is now. Over time, the First Amendment has been broadened, expanded, whatever you want to say, uh, to the point where our liberties today are, you know, greater than they were at the inception of the country or at the ratification of the First Amendment. But we have a strange relationship with it. And this notion of the separation of church and state is written nowhere in the Constitution. Right. It comes from a letter from Thomas Jefferson to a group of Anabaptists where he talks about we need a wall of separation between church and state. What he was talking about was having a state religion like the Church of England was, uh, with George III as the supreme head of the church. That's what they wanted to get away from. That doesn't mean that our speech is going to be proscribed if it's faith-based. I mean, look at Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Mm -hmm. the civil rights movement of the 60s. Here is an accomplished... Uh, Baptist pastor who readily wove biblical themes through his speeches, in his oratory, in his letters and writings. Uh, he included theological interpretation. He spoke. Faith, he spoke a faith-based advocacy in order to change the society, and so that Black people could have an equal uh, playing field. So we've got this marvelous First Amendment and mind. There are 45 words only in the First Amendment. Right. And they may be, from a secular perspective anyway, the 45 most powerful words put together ever because they preclude the Congress, which has now been interpreted to include all levels of government, state and local. It precludes the government from establishing a religion, from uh, curtailing our exercise of religion, our free speech, the freedom of the press, the right to assemble and um to peaceably petition petition is the last of the five um petition the government for the redress of grievances i start i count them as the establishment clause and then the five rights free Mm -hmm. exercise speech press assembly and petition so In those 45 words are packed this enormous amount of civil liberty for each and every one of us. So the separation of church and state is a concept that Jefferson wrote about. But sometimes I encounter people who actually think that is in the Constitution
0: Right, yeah, me too, all the time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is not in the Constitution. And we can speak faithfully in the public square. Now, the public square can be lots of different places, right? It can be uh, in the halls of Congress or at your city hall. Um, students have a, a, a an expansive amount of free speech rights in the public schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be... Um, on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, it could be in a park, you know, in a public park. Yep. it could be on a conventional broadcast media such as radio and television and cable. Anywhere that people are allowed to go freely, you know, where we expect that we can be there as public space constitutes public space uh so we have a First Amendment, we have this uh, broad understanding of public space, and uh, we are allowed to use our faith and I'm talking you know from an interfaith perspective too, John, not just Christianity. I mean I talk about Christianity because uh, I'm a Christian cleric, and that's what I know that's what I've studied, but it includes Judaism and Islam and Buddhism and Jainism and Hinduism and uh, uh, Sikh Sikhism, uh, I mean, you can go on and on. You know, everybody has equal footing under the First Amendment in the United States of America.
0: One of the things that I often use as an example when trying to explain this to high school students is, mm-hmm. and also one of the things that I think is a useful way of sort of looking at the way that the um, the far right often tries to sort of rig this game mm-hmm. um, is the issue of prayer in school, mm-hmm. right? So the right likes to say that, um, you know, prayer in school is somehow illegal. Mm-hmm. But if you're in a public school, and you're in the back of a classroom, and before a test, you put your hands together and, and pray mm-hmm. to God that you pass your math test, no one's going to expel you or suspend you. And, 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 have no right to do so what they mean by prayer in school is mandatory you know prayer at the beginning of the school day which honestly is kind of what the pledge of allegiance is which is also yes. kind of problematic but like that's that's a whole different that's a different topic i
1: think we should get rid of the pledge of allegiance
0: i agree yeah okay <laughs> i think pledging to a flag is weird i do too but but that's pretty that's basically it right the the, the first amendment um and, and the sort of modern interpretation of it is nobody can be compelled to pray, but nobody in public school is going to be kicked out if in the middle of the hall or wherever they say a prayer to, to you know, some teacher catches them, right, yeah. saying a prayer to, to Jesus or whatever.
1: That's right. That's, per, that's about personal piety versus uh enforce group participation one of the things i talked about in
0: the in the intro um is this issue of what's happening in mississippi right now with this with this kerfuffle over the license plates um where mississippi license plates say in god we trust and Mm -hmm. uh there's there's a a, some, some atheists um uh, and, and, you know, sort of, um, civil rights groups who who are trying to, um, have it removed and suing to, to, to have it removed. Mm -hmm. Um, so that basic case alone, like what, what would be, what do you think is the, um, you know, from a, from a legal perspective, like, what do you think is the appropriate, uh, interpretation of that, of that case?
1: Oh, (laughs) now you had to open a can of worms like that, didn't you? (laughs) Yeah, I did. Yeah. Okay. So, well, first of all, I think we have to get it off our money. Right. And I think that that is going to be the bigger, harder task. I think that In God We Trust has a Judeo-Christian ring to it that could be viewed as an established religion. Mm -hmm. It does sound like a particular uh, creed or religion is being codified, if you will, will, on these license plates. And I have a problem with that. Even though I'm, you know, I'm part of the Judeo-Christian tradition, uh, it reminds me of the school prayer in Texas, the high school, um, many years, this case is several years old, and I haven't read it in a while. So um, I apologize if I kind of blow it, but they had before football game in in a high school football game, public high school football game. They had prayer right? uh, and it got challenged. And the court said, no, you can't do that because it constitutes an establishment issue. And I remember NPR, one of the reporters was interviewing somebody from Texas who's, you know, and the reporter said something like, well, if this was you know, a Muslim prayer or a Jewish prayer, would you feel the same way? And the person was like, hell no. (laughs) And that's not, you know, and that's not going to happen down here. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, but that's really not the point, is it? That's really not the point. No one religion should get preferential or superior treatment, which is what I think that phrase is doing. Now, and people may disagree with me, um, but I think that it's a problem. I think it is an establishment issue. And of course, of the two rights that are, you know, listed in the First Amendment, the ones that typically are almost automatically in uh, competition or intention with each other are going to be, on for religious cases going to the Supreme Court, are going to be the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. They are going to be, you know, at odds with each other almost all the time. And that's what this Texas case was about. And again, that goes back to a forced sort of group activity versus personal piety.
0: Right. So one of the consequences of the uh, the Trump presidency is uh, that we There's now have... There's just one? A, <laughs> one of. One oh, of the oh, many. okay. okay. All right. <laughs> God, I wish there was just one.
1: Oh,
0: Lord. One of the ones that's going to be with us for a long time, uh, unfortunately, is uh, the, the current makeup of the Supreme Court, which, which seems to be more um, amenable to um, the sort of Reinstitution of religiosity in, mm-hmm. in the center of public life. Um, to to put it sort of politely, um,
1: that was very polite.
0: <laughs> <laughs> to try to be <laughs> as polite as possible. Uh, uh,
1: good man. What what, what,
0: <laughs> um, what are what are some of the things you you've you're concerned about um, when it comes to sort of loosening because because. The reason i ask you this is because a lot of your work um requires or 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 sort of implements right um using religion as one of the ways of making your case and making your argument and making your um your, your social justice cases right to the yes, public
1: that's correct. um
0: and like it would be a bummer to have that you know reined in somehow and of course that's not what you want or what anybody i think really wants but on the other hand right there's the then the the excess of saying well then also your religious expression means that um you can deny you know women reproductive health care or 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 whatever Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um when it comes to the, the, the work that you do and the way that you implement um, your, your, your faith in your, um, in your social work, uh, what are some of the things that you are most concerned about um, with, with the, uh, the Supreme Court issue um, going forward?
1: Well, I am concerned about the composition of the court. Um, they have surprised me in these uh, last decisions coming out before they break mm-hmm. for summer. They have yeah. really surprised me. And a number of the votes have been uh, nearly unanimous or 7-2s. We, we almost, I don't know, have we seen a 7-2 decision in the last 500 years? No. That's um, a point. Yeah. You know, I mean, wow. I, I've been very pleasantly surprised At that, I'm concerned about the Episcopal Church, for example, teaches that to every abortion, there is a tragic dimension. And I agree with that. But the Episcopal Church has also uh, unequivocally supported the right for a woman to have proper medical care in the event a pregnancy needs to be terminated. Uh, regardless of the reason it doesn't just have to be uh, because it the health of the mother is endangered and i agree with that as well uh i i am very concerned i think roe v wade is could be vulnerable um and we have to also be realistic at least the court does i think about What is going to happen? You know, what are the ramifications of doing a reverse on this? What is going to happen? Mm -hmm. Are we going back to the back alley abortion? Uh, It just makes the hair on my neck stand up. And so I think, you know, we need to um, find a, a... a way forward. I know that in some countries in, uh, Europe, you know, you have 12 weeks, you have uh, the first trimester to make a decision. And I'm not talking about uh, very at risk pregnancies where the fetus is seriously, uh, disfigured or has, you know, some issue where it is not going to survive. I'm not talking about those kinds of situations. So I'm concerned. I I'm not convinced that, and the court will end up being confronted with this. There's no doubt about it. Uh, right. I'm not I'm not convinced that abortion will be com- be made completely unconstitutional. Uh, perhaps I'm hoping against hope, um, uh, and I'm hoping maybe Justice Roberts will stand on the you know, right side of women on this issue. Um, It bothers me that people feel it is so important to, uh, to control another individual's life circumstances without even knowing what they are. That, that really bothers me more, you know, as much as um, just kind of being jerks about it. Um, and in refusing to recognize that there's a lot of factors that go into a woman's decision to do this. I think most women don't do this haphazardly. And you can judge a society by the kind of freedom that a woman has in it. And so is that where we really want to go? Um, I'd like to uh, step back a little bit to, you know, as the country was being founded, uh, our, our philosophy, our ideology of this country was heavily influenced by Locke and S- John Locke and some others. Uh, and what emerged from that was this notion of, uh, you know, a free white men, um, probably property holding men, but free the freedom of white men the, a limited government, and uh, c- controlling the moral compass of the society. And we are very much seeing that now. There is no biblical prohibition against abortion. Yeah, yeah. There there are several... Um, Bits of encouragement throughout the uh, Old Testament, particularly, that says be fruitful and multiply. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. So so there's been this distortion of what, if you're relying on the Bible, you know, there's been this distortion about it. Um, and <clears throat> we're seeing that idea of the free white man, limited government and moral compass is still very much alive today. And it's called the GOP for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted to get that out there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this is
0: where it's going to get a little bit tricky. And, mm-hmm. um, and and one of the things, you know, this is why I think having someone like you speak to this is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, the criticism might be that um, your work working with let's say um immigrant families or mm-hmm. or lgbtq plus rights etc yeah. um that once you once you case that within the framework of um, christian theology or or your own particular christian theology mm-hmm. um the 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 response on the right right um is is usually something like well we're just doing the same thing Um, so why can't I, uh, fight for a world where nobody gets an abortion? Let's just say in good faith, that's what the actual, um, crusade is about. Mm -hmm. Uh, but to say I'm, I'm basing on my faith um this 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 notion of or or this uh this moral decision that i've made one way or another Mm -hmm. right so so i've decided that this thing is immoral and i'm going to fight to stop it from happening and Mm -hmm. use my faith to stop that so i hear a lot of that same language yeah that same idea right coming from from the 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 christian left Mm -hmm. in in the especially in the you know uh the the child separation policy and all that sort of thing Mm -hmm. um explain why one is okay Because I emotionally agree with you that it is or emotionally agree that it is, right? And one is not. Um, Mm -hmm. Where is that? Where is the line between those two things?
1: All right, let's go back to the First Amendment. You know, people accuse me of wanting to establish a, a progressive Christian theocracy in the work that I do. That's not what I'm doing. What I am doing is encouraging people to be more vocal because they have the right and the tools to do that. I absolutely agree that people in the more conservative or evangelical corner of Christ's holy vineyard have the right to uh, speak uh, from a faith-based perspective in the public square. The problem we have right now is What what I advocate for is this idea of debate, of democratic, not democratic party people, democratic debate, where all the different perspectives come to the fore and we talk about it and together we arrive at the best decision. Now, I realize this is a bit idealistic. Because basically right now, all we seem to do in terms of debate is one side lobs some sort of a verbal bomb at the other side and then they, you know, pull the pin and throw the same thing back or something worse. And we just devolve into this, you know, bunch of name calling and it's just, it's really sad. So what I want, what I am encouraging is that all the different voices, whether they're faith-based or not faith-based, come together to talk about the issues to depoliticize what's going on and really look at the facts and the issues so that we can arrive at the best possible policy and laws. What's the problem with what's going on with the right and its stranglehold on the GOP is, is simply that, uh, you know, one of our parties has basically been hijacked by this very powerful uh, lobby or uh, group of vote, you know, this voting constituency of uh, conservative Christians. They have banded together very effectively And they are, uh, you know, giving marching orders to their elected officials. Sometimes I think uh, the GOP particularly is, you know, acting perhaps even in contravention of what their constituency is telling them. But Mm -hmm. um, there's a this is much more of a systemic kind of situation. And it's being. Led almost exclusively by straight white men. Um, It is, uh, you know, a rather blatant attempt to dictate what is moral and what isn't. And deftly, very deftly, the religious right, right often does not bring the Bible into it. And they just talk about Abortion, like there is, is no possible way that that could be allowed because they've just deemed it, they've stamped it immoral, and that's it. And they have the right to do that, and they have the right to control it, and that's what they're going to do. Part of that is you know, to um, uh, keep pa- patriarchy in power and in place. Um, It's, this is about, you know, it's very simple. It's about controlling women's bodies without taking any responsibility for when a pregnancy occurs. So those, and some people may say, well, that's growing a hair to split it. But I do think that there's a very big difference because part of what's going out is all, uh, many voices are being drowned out by this one giant screaming, yelling voice. Mm -hmm. and we're not looking at other perspectives and we're certainly not looking at other potential resolutions to these very important and complex issues
0: i guess one of the things that i have a hard time sort of arguing against sometimes um even if i even want to is um, a lot of my my you know lefty friends will say well look why do you need like what's the point of having um or invoking uh religion or, or christianity at all here because um in some cases it it only sort of weakens your, your your point right like you can make a moral argument of um you know there's there's a there's a basis for like being Thinking abortion is kind of a bummer, but like not wanting people to restrict people's access to it, um, mm. or or to to make that often difficult choice um, on the one hand, and then say and ripping children away from their families at the border and turning them into orphans uh, for the sake of cruelty, right? You 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 don't if you take religion out of it, you can just say one. There's it, a very clear moral argument to be made here. You, you don't need to. You know sort of Mm -hmm. say my christianity says this and your christianity says this or whatever um Mm -hmm. and so a lot of a lot of people say like you know go back to to slavery Uh, slavery was both justified by christianity and so was the abolitionist movement right yes um Mm So, so what is the advantage of having some sort of a um, religious or or spiritual grounding to these, these moral principles and, okay. um, and, and to sort of organizing around social justice um, with Christianity at the core instead of just saying, look, <laughs> one of these things is clearly more egregiously immoral than the other. And I'm just going to stick with that. I don't need a Bible to tell me. Mm-hmm. that that this is wrong um, and, and and worth fighting for.
1: So basically you're putting forth a humanistic argument. Yeah. It's a good argument. And I think we need the humanist voice. We need all the voices. We need all the different kinds of voices to come to the public square to have proper conversations about what is going on and how we deal with it. So you're right. I don't necessarily have to invoke the gospel of Jesus Christ to necessarily say, stop putting children in cages and separating them, perhaps irrevocably, from their parents. You idiots. (laughs) So you're right. But I think that our... Because the free expression of religion is so highly valued in this country, along with the other rights of the First Amendment, speech, you know, free exercise, the press, the uh, peaceful assembly and the petition of the government, because we are equipped with these uh, enviable rights by people around the world, we should exercise them. All of the voices need to come forth because uh, John Stuart Mill said, you know, um, uh, open to, in open debate, will you arrive at the truth? When we have as many people participating as possible, we get ideas, we learn, from each other and we we hopefully find a way to the the best solution at the time. That doesn't mean we don't have to come back or continue the conversations and listen to the victims, listen to the people who have been affected by the status quo. And that's the difference that I see is yes, you can take a humanist perspective and just say, you know, there is a north. There's a north star. There's a, you know, uh, uh, there. Everybody has a understands what north is on on the compass, or most of us do. Uh, do we have to find that through religion? Some of us don't. Uh, I increasingly more of us don't. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that we don't. People of faith don't have something of value to add to the mix you know, assuming it's a sincerely held religious belief. Now, I'm an Episcopal priest, so, you know, I'm going to own that bias. But I still think that uh, it's important to hear from, you know, my Buddhist brothers and sisters and uh, all across the globe, all across that perspective, that religious perspective, and outside of the religious perspective, I want to know what other people think, and maybe we together we can figure it out.
0: One of the things that the religious left has been very lousy at doing is uh, organizing. It's the one thing. Again, one of the things, (laughs) uh, (laughs) and that's of course true of the American left in general. But um, in contrast to that, of course, is the profound. Ability of the right to organize and to find, yeah. um, you know, wedge issues. I mean, abortion being the one that is uh, the most obvious, right? Uh, an issue that Protestants didn't care, couldn't care less about until uh, several, you know, a couple decades ago when they mm-hmm. realized they could leverage the Catholics with it. And...
1: Right? They got worried about the patriarchy.
0: <laughs> well, that too. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. But
0: you know, I, I look at the way, like, I've, 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 I've studied Jerry Falwell a lot, and oh dear. Um, yeah, Which I know, one? not like not for fun uh, the, the okay. original like the, oh, yeah, okay. the, the the competent one
1: yeah
0: his ability to I, I think one of the things that we talk least about is the way that he um, redefined the term evangelical to mean yeah. fundamentalist yeah. and also re- redefined the word Liberty to mean the freedom to be a, a, a born-again Christian um, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, made his whole college out of that. And yeah. then, you know, it, it sort of surprises people when Trump comes along and everyone's like, wow, how did they get the Christians to um, fall in line behind a guy who, like, clearly has never been to church in his life and, like, says to Corinthians and, all you know, it does, it can't name a Bible verse and says that his favorite part is the Old and New Testament, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't surprise me, but it does surprise mm-hmm. a lot of people, right? Um And it speaks to just how organized this movement is. Mm -hmm. How on the Christian left is, is the, the, you know, liberal social justice Christian movement ever going to combat that?
1: Well, I'm, I'm hoping to help with that. Uh, I certainly uh, don't think that I can do it all by myself.
0: (laughs) I don't think so either.
1: But uh, there are many of us out there who are fighting the good fight and Uh, I think people who were somewhat politically asleep during the Trump years have been awakened.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And uh, the midterms, the 2018 midterms were definitely an indicator of that. Uh, And then the 2020 election. Okay. So, What I'm doing and what I'm talking about on podcast shows is the need for us as progressive minded people, whatever stripe of religious practice we have, to get out there and talk about why social justice is important and why we need to put a stop to young black people being mowed down by the police. We need to finally, you know, we need to be disgusted because that's one of the strongest emotions a human being can experience. Particularly white folks need Mm -hmm. to get disgusted. And we do need to be more organized. I completely agree with your assessment. It makes me crazy, John, when... (laughs) when some evangelical somebody will say something that uh, mainline Protestants and many Roman Catholics do not agree with, um, as if they are the final singular authority on biblical interpretation. And then there is dead silence from us. Mm -hmm. This makes me nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Because, number one, we don't offer a counter, which makes it look like they are correct. And I think this is partly why so many people have been uh, disabused of the idea that Christianity is a good idea. Because it's mean-spirited and it's selfish. That's how it looks to them. And that's not what it is. And that's not how I practice Christianity. And millions of other Americans don't either. So we have to um, set aside some of our ideological differences because, frankly, we're like herding a bunch of cats. <laughs> it's, like her- it's like herding, you know, 80 million cats, if you can imagine. And we need to just say, all right, we're going to we're going to do this and this and this and this and, this, and um, uh, we're going to make a difference. One of the biggest things that we can do right now, particularly if uh, people are moderate-leaning Republicans, is be in touch with their representatives. Um, and, and also, uh, Democrats will say to me, well, and I'm in this situation. I have two Democratic U.S. senators and uh, my congresswoman is a Democrat. And very fine one, too. So they are constantly fighting the good fight. They're, vi- they're voting the way that I want them to. But they still need to hear from me because they need to back up what they're doing by saying, my constituency says X. And people think that if they're in line with their elected officials, in other words, they are voting on policy and laws the way that you know they want them to. That they don't need to be in touch with them. That's not true.
0: Right, right.
1: And they need to keep statistics on who's for and against what they're doing. They need to know this stuff. It's critical for them in terms if they're really listening to their constituency, it's critical for them to do a good job. Now, I do think there are rogue uh, elected officials out there who basically do whatever they think regardless all the time. That's a problem. And so we have to uh, we have to join ranks, join forces, use our money to help get these people out of office. We have to open our wallets. We have to be in touch with our elected officials. And then the other thing that we all need to do is use our skills, knowledge and experience to contribute to the making of good law. And this is particularly true at the state level. You know, let's say that you're a social worker and the state is considering a bill that would affect your population. You know, you need to be in touch with your representative and say, I wanna come and testify. And there are many of, many, many, many of us out there who have the skills and training, and experience, and credentials to do that very thing. So, yes, we are hard to get into lockstep fashion. Yeah. But we can definitely make a difference. Um, And I've got a book coming up in uh, the end of the year that will uh, help people find their voice. It's a how-to manual on how to be a faith-based advocate.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I think that one of the, um, I sort of alluded to it earlier, but one of the last times that any meaningful sort of Christian left organizing um, was visible uh, was the abolitionist movement. And yeah. um, having the institution of slavery around which to coalesce, you know, is sort mm-hmm. of like, again, the way the right has used abortion as a, as a cudgel. Um, Yes. And and, and a way of, of, of coming together. Um, I I wonder if you think that, you know, George Floyd being a a turning point or, or the, um, uh, the, the climate catastrophe that we're currently enduring. Um, Mm -hmm. if you have any hope that those things might, might start to give the left something to, um, Cling on to, or even as you suggest, Trumpism as a as a as a motivating um, principle.
1: Yeah. Well, I don't know about you, but I think that the country is a, is been changed by uh, the lynching, and I use that word because that's what happened of George Floyd. Mm. Um, lynching. The legal definition of lynching. Is the extrajudicial killing, usually by a mob, uh, but not always, of someone. George Floyd was lynched. There was no there were no formal charges brought to which he could answer through counsel, through an attorney. Mm-hmm. There was no judge. there was no jury, there was no prosecutor there was only an executioner. Contemporary lynching continues in this country as, a, um, and as, as an extension of the kind of lynching that went on in the 1800s after the Civil War, going into uh, the 20s and 30s. And as a matter of fact, per capita, Mexicans and Mexican-Americans in the Southwest were lynched at a higher rate. There's a museum in Alabama. It's a, about our lynching history. And it commemorates over 4,000 persons who have been lynched in this country. And uh, we have an appetite for lynching. We have an appetite for extrajudicial killings of persons of color in this country. And so George Floyd, with an incontrovertible video, nobody can deny what happened. We all saw it. Mm -hmm. We weren't physically there, but we saw it. And I think having seen that, I've only watched it once. I can't watch it again. Um, But for so many of us who saw it, something changed. I'm so sorry for him that it took that for us to, you know, get a clue. But something in many, many of us changed that day. And I am very hopeful that there has been such a hue and cry from the people in the you know this last year um and we need to continue that work but i want it to be peaceful and constructive instead and you know instead of there being violence whether it's on the part potentially of uh troublemaking protesters who show up with the idea you know that they're going to rumble Or if it was Trump's goons, uh, you know, picking people up and taking them into custody and, uh, you know, uh, violating their civil rights. Mm -hmm. But I think we are all, we are looking at things differently now. We have a bit more of a distrustful gaze in terms of motivation for wrongdoing and you know how people of color are treated we're challenging ourselves and i think that that is such an incredible legacy for mr floyd and all the other folks who have died ignoble deaths because we don't train our police you know uh fully or we don't vet them i think the vetting the psychological vetting is really critical um And we don't give them the tools that they need to negotiate a situation uh, properly. I'm not anti-police. People think, oh, well, you know, you're just anti-police. If we, if I have a a burglar in my house, I want to call the police. (laughs) Right. Right. You know, uh, like that's what they should
0: be doing right Not Well, yeah, exactly. Right. yeah, Yeah,
1: exactly. But you know, do we need to move to a community safety model and change the ethos? Uh, do we need more gun control so the cops feel safer on the streets? Well, hello. Uh, God forbid. You know, yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm I'm very encouraged, John. I think that uh, we will not fall back into complacency. And I think Brianna Taylor's murder also uh, got a lot of us uh, pretty hot and bothered.
0: Yeah, I tend to agree and I and I think the um the right-wing freak out over the boogeyman that is critical race theory um is is pretty yeah. telling um that mm-hmm. you know I don't think that's a winnable war for them because it's not right. a real thing. Um right. and and even what what is real they have no idea what it is or or what they're actually right. fighting against. Um right. but yeah, oddly that is encouraging to me, right? That that, that there's um, that's what they're choosing to, to, to lose their minds over. And, um, it's because we are starting to look at race critically, uh, which is, which is super duper important. Um, before you go, I, the last, last thing I want to ask you, um, on Mm -hmm. sort of a personal note, um, getting back to sort of where I started with this is, um, as we are, uh, approaching and, and by the time people are listening to this, uh, just past July 4th, Mm -hmm. um, how are you feeling about July 4th these days and Mm. um, being an American um, in general uh, this, this 2021?
1: Uh, I did something, Linda and I, my, my wife of, uh, it'll be our 40th anniversary next year. uh, When Biden and Harris were inaugurated, we put a flag out for the first time in four years and we put little flags in the little planters, you know, Uh, Three little flags in one and three little flags in the other Uh, because it became really good to be an American again. Uh, I love my country. I love my constitution. I love our constitution. Uh, I think it's one of the most extraordinary things that was ever created. You know, there are many things about what we do that are really fabulous. So, I don't ever want to sound ungrateful for the freedoms that I have and the opportunities and whatnot. Um, We have a lot of work to do. And I think it's fine to celebrate the birth of our country, but we also have to remember always that whoever lives here, acquired their rights in layers starting from this Lockean view of the free, white, straight male.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And moving, you know, through the the centuries as people, uh, as emancipation occurred, and as women's suffrage occurred, and as the Civil Rights Acts were passed, passed, uh, and the Voting Rights Act the year after, and LGBTQ suffrage and the Obergefell decision that allowed Linda and I to marry after 32 years. We we have to remember that not everybody has always been free, not everybody has always had a you know a level playing field. And it's our work as Americans to participate in the achievement where everybody has the same opportunity. And so those are the things that I think about on Independence Day. And I think we can do it.
0: You mentioned your upcoming book. Uh, Before I let you go, is there anything else that you would like to point people towards?
1: Well, sure. Um, To get more information, I'm about to start putting some courses up on my website if you're interested in you know, learning how to be a faith-based advocate and, and how to approach it. And it's designed for people at varying levels. I've had some introverts say, hey, you know, I don't want to get out there on the front line and be at a protest or, you know, whatever. <laughs> and I'm like, well, fine. You know, we need uh, graphic designers to create materials for us to pass out and advertise our events, and we need speech writers, and we need, uh, you know, We need all manner of persons. And the analogy to that, you asked why, you know, faith is important. And so I'll close with this and say that, you know, St. Paul, in some of his most beautiful writings said, for we are all one body in Christ. And if we were all I, where would the hearing be? We all have something to give. We all have something to contribute to the movement. And so... Um, you can learn more about all of this at politicaltheologymatters.com. Politicaltheologymatters.com. And uh, you can email me at Marsha at politicaltheologymatters.com.
0: Great. Uh, well, Marsha, uh, it's been really wonderful talking to you. Thanks so much. My
1: pleasure, John.